Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya um, <clears throat> Namaskaram. Um, I was earlier thinking of answering some questions I have been asked on um, on uh, on you in the on the YouTube channel. Various questions I've been asked about the practice of self investigation, but at the last minute I decided to discuss another subject which is very fundamental to understanding Bhagavan's teachings correctly. Um, the context in which I'm going to be talking about this, as um, some of you may be aware, a couple of days ago I had a conversation with a, a person called Bernardo Kastrup. Um, he's, a, he's a very good and sincere person and he was trying to understand um, what I was explaining, but perhaps I wasn't explaining it very well. Anyway, he, where he, what he had difficulty understanding is what not only he, many people have difficulty understanding about Bhagavan's teachings, is Bhagavan's teachings on Ekajivavada. Ekajivavada means the contention that there is just one jiva. One jiva means one ego. This is um, this is very fundamental in Bhagavan's teachings. It's implied in so many of Bhagavan's teachings. For example, this is just one example out of many. I mean, it's implied throughout all of Dunapadu, but one place where it's particularly clear is in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, in which Bhagavan says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. This verse would make no sense if there were multiple egos, because then, because the, the multiplicity of egos would be part of the everything that Bhagavan refers to when he says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. So we can make sense of this verse and so many other teachings of Bhagavan only if we are willing to accept that a fundamental principle of Bhagavan's teaching is that there is just one ego. This 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 uh, this contention or this teaching that there's just one ego is what in Western philosophy is referred to as solipsism. However, the the solipsism taught by Bhagavan is a very much is a a very much deeper and more nuanced solipsism than the general understanding of solipsism. So this is where. Bernardo um, had difficulty grasping this. And it, it is something that, and, unless people have not only studied Bhagavan's teachings carefully, but also tried to put it into practice, it's very difficult. This, this is what Bhagavan has taught us is a very deep and subtle truth. It was perhaps ill judged of me to, in, in, the course of just one conversation to lead up to this point. But this point came up when I was discussing this verse 26 of Volusian Apadu and its implications. Um, and obviously I I was I 
I went too far in trying to, in, in expecting him to be able to understand this. Since that conversation, I've been thinking about this, whether I was, whether I was explaining it clearly enough. So um, I did try to explain it, but I think I didn't explain it clearly enough. So I thought today I would try and break down, break things down in, in, a, in a way that an analytical philosopher like Bernardo Kastrup could understand. Um, in analytical philosophy, they like arguments to be very precise, that all the terms in the argument should be well-defined, and the, the premises should be clear, and the conclusion should be clear. So I noted down a series of premises, but I hope will help not only him, but so many of Bhagavan's devotees who have difficulty understanding this, I hope it will help them to understand in what sense Bhagavan is uh, talking about, um, I mean, why Bhagavan is talking about one ego. So the, it, the premises that I, I was actually just noting them down before this meeting, I was in the middle of noting down the last one when Shalini asked me to start talking. So I'll, I'll go through the premises one by one. One, we are the experiencer of all that we experience. I think nobody is going to um, deny that. It's, we all know we are the experiencer of all that we experience. As the experiencer, we always experience ourselves as a person. As the experiencer, that's number two. Then number three, as the experiencer, we perceive a world that is full of other people who are just like the person we seem to be. Four, since we, the experiencer, always experience ourselves as a person, every other person seems to us to be an experiencer just like us. Five, all the other people and their experiences are no less real than the person we seem to be. Six. So uh, Michael, could you um, sort of repeat and go over it slowly? If we're trying okay. to make notes, it's impossible. Okay, okay. So if we could just go through it again, okay. like two or three times. Each okay, one. yes, <laughs> okay. The first one, we are the experiencer of all that we experience. That is, I'll repeat it once more. We are the experiencer of all that we experience. Two, as the experiencer, we always experience ourselves as a person. I, I'll repeat it. As the experiencer, we always experience ourselves as a person. Three, as the experiencer, we perceive a world that is full of other people who are just like the person we seem to be. Uh, I'll repeat, as the experiencer, we perceive a world that is full of other people who are just like the person we seem to be. Four, since we, the experiencer, always experience ourselves as a person, every other person seems to be an experiencer just like us. That is because we, the experiencer, take ourselves to be a person. We take every other person to be an experiencer. 
this, this, Could you just what, repeat that once more? Okay. Since we, the experiencer, always experience ourselves as a person, every other person seems to us to be an experiencer just like us. Five, all the other people and their experiences are no less real than the person we seem to be. I'll repeat that. All the other people and their experiences are no less real than the person we seem to be. Six, so long as we seem to be a person, we experience suffering. And every other person seems to us to experience suffering in the same way. That is, so long as we seem to be a person, we experience suffering. And every other person seems to us to experience suffering in the same way. Seven, so long as we are firmly convinced that this person whom we seem to be is what we actually are, then our suffering and the suffering of all other people will inevitably seem to us to be real. That is, so long as we are firmly convinced that this person whom we seem to be is what we actually are, then our suffering and the suffering of all other people will inevitably seem to be real. Eight, but are we this person? In other words, is this person what we actually are? That is, but are we this person? In other words, is this person what we actually are? Nine, if this person is not what we actually are, our experience of ourselves as I am this person is an illusion and hence unreal. That is, if this person is not what we actually are, our experience of ourselves as I am this person is an illusion and hence unreal. 10. Everything that we, as the experiencer, experience is based upon our experience of ourselves because we experience things other than ourselves only when we experience ourselves as a person, namely in waking and dream. That is, everything that we, as the experiencer, experience is based upon our experience of ourselves as a person, because we experience things other than ourselves only when we experience ourselves as a person, namely in waking and dream. It's an illusion. Our experience of everything else must be equally illusory. Uh, Twelve. If our ex oh, I'm sorry, I'll read eleven uh, again. Uh, uh, Michael, I think yeah. you need to do uh, ten and eleven again. Okay, okay, ten is a bit a uh, bit of a longer it's, it's one. It's quite long, yeah. Yes, sorry. We, as the experience, uh, experience is based upon our experience of ourself as a person because we experience things other than ourselves only when we experience ourselves as a person, namely in waking and dream.
I'll read that once more. Everything but we as the experiencer experience is based upon our experience of ourself as a person. Because we experience things other than ourself only when we experience ourself as a person, namely in waking and dream. 11. Therefore, if our experience of ourself as I am this person is an illusion, our experience of everything else must be equally illusory. I'll read that once more. Therefore, if our experience of ourself as I am this person is an illusion, our experience of everything else must be equally illusory. 12. If our experience of everything else is illusory, the person we seem to be and all the other people are a part of that illusion and hence unreal. That is, if our experience of everything else is illusory, the person we seem to be and all the other people are a part of that illusion and hence unreal. 13. Um, Michael, just could you please yeah. go over 12 again? If, okay. Uh, if our experience of everything else is illusory, the person we seem to be and all the other people are a part of that illusion and hence unreal. That is, it's not only in naive solipsism, the solipsism that people's usual imagination of solipsism is that. I am the only person who's experiencing anything. So this person is somehow special, but not according to the solipsism that Ekajiva Vada, Bhagavan has taught us. The person we seem to be is as unreal, as much a part of the illusion as all the other people. So we're in no way privileging the person we seem to be. That's an explanation of what I had written down. So I'll read it just once more, if that helps. If our experience of everything else is illusory, the person we seem to be and all the other people are a part of that illusion and hence unreal. Is that clear, Shalini? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, 13. Um, if the person we seem to be and all the other people are unreal, their suffering and everything else that they seem to experience must also be unreal. When I say their suffering and everything else that they seem to experience, they include the person we seem to be. That is, as a person we seem to be, we seem to undergo suffering. We undergo the joys and sorrows of life. But if this person we seem to be and all the other people are unreal, their suffering and everything else that they seem to experience must also be unreal. Is that clear, Shalini? Uh, yes. And then 14 is also a longish one. Therefore, since the appearance of multiple experiences exists in the view of ourself as an experiencer who experiences itself as a person, if we are not this person, 
then the entire appearance of multiple experiences is an illusion and hence unreal. I'll read that again because it's a longish one. Therefore, since the appearance of multiple experiences exists in the view of ourself as an experiencer who experiences itself as a person, if we are not this person, then the entire appearance of multiple experiences is an illusion and hence unreal. Is that is that clear enough, Shalini? Uh, yes, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then 15. Since there can be no appearance without an experience of it, the root cause of the entire appearance of multiple experiences is the experience of it, namely ourself. I'll read that once more. Since there can be no appearance without an experience of it, that is, an appearance must always appear to, to someone or to something. It's, I mean, there must be something that is aware of the appearance for there to be an appearance. So the, the root cause of the entire appearance of multiple experiences is the experiencer of it, namely ourself. That is, who experiences the appearance of multiple experiences? It is, we, ex we experience it. So we are the experiencer of the appearance of multiple experiences. <clears throat> um, is that clear enough, Shalini? Um, yeah, I think that's clear. Yeah, okay. Then the 16th one, I was in the middle of writing, and there were maybe a few more I'll think of after this, um, but I'll read this one. Um, therefore, before we can judge the reality of the appearance of multiple experiences, we first need to investigate and find out the reality of ourself in whose view that appearance of multiple experiences appears, or in whose view they, that appearance exists, or seems to exist. That was, uh, that was as far as I got in writing down my notes. Um, but the point, the point is, so long as, um, uh, I, I, I'm now not reading from notes, I'm now coming back to the, the, the main, I mean, uh, uh, the rest is extempore, this is what I have prepared till now. Um, sorry, was that 16th point clear enough, Shalini? Uh, yes, but I think it's always useful to go over it okay. once. Okay, therefore, before we can reliably, let's add there reliably, before we can reliably judge the reality of the appearance of multiple experiences, we first need to investigate and find out the reality of ourself in whose view that appearance of multiple experiences appear, um, appears. My own benefit, I'll note down what we can. Right. Okay. Um, 
I think that's okay, Michael. Actually, right. I think this is a very useful thing. Um, some people might find it quite cerebral, but to put down step by step is, I think, quite useful as sort of a resource. Yeah, to go yeah. Back I, to. it helps people. It helps people to understand. I I will later finish writing these, and I'll um, I'll add it in the description under the video, so that people can read these uh, points and. Um, and consider for themselves. Um, but I mean, the reason I express it in this way, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely subtle, extremely deep. They're also what I suppose would be called counterintuitive. Our intuition, what, what strikes us naturally, is that we are... A, are just one individual, one person in this world of uh, in this vast universe, it, and in this world there seem to be so many other people who are just like us, and therefore there are multiple experiences. This is this is how things seem to us to be. Not only in the waking state, even in dream. In dream, so long as we are dreaming, it seems to us but we are just one person in a big in a large world with so many other people that's all seems to be real so long as we are dreaming but when we wake up from the dream we recognize it all existed only in the view of ourselves the dreamer the dreamer is not the person we seem to be in the dream the person we seem to be in a dream is a part of our dream so the dream, the, the dream person is not the dreamer, but as the dreamer, we experience ourselves as that dream person. So it, it, it's one of the things that is very, very important in Bhagavan's teachings is to distinguish ourselves. As I've been using the term experiencer now because um, when I was talking with Bernardo Castro, he was questioning the definition of ego. What I refer to as the experiencer is ego. It's obviously as ego, but we experience all these things. And ego, um, as Bhagavan made clear in verse 24 of Uludunaptu, ego is what is also referred to as jiva, the soul, the individual. Um, so, um, so long as we're looking outwards, so long as we're looking at the world, there seem to be multiple experiences. Every person seems to be an experiencer because we, as the experiencer, experience ourselves as a person. Every other person seems to us to be an experiencer. Because it seems to be so, so long as we're looking outwards, we are experiencing ourselves as a person. And so we need to behave in this world as if there are a multiplicity of, um, of, uh, of other experiences, other jivas. So, nana jiva vada, the, the contention that there are many jivas, is appropriate so long as we are looking outwards. Because so long as we're looking outwards, in effect, they're, they're, that's, it's part of this appearance is that there are many, many other experiences in this, um, uh, um, in this uh, appearance. So this is undeniable. In the dream, all the other people in the dream seem to be just as, seem to be seeing the same world that we are seeing. And it all seems real, so long as we are 
are experiencing ourselves as that dream person. The reason we the dream seems so real, so long as we're dreaming it, is because we experience ourselves as a dream person. What is actually real is only ourselves as I am. But because we experience ourselves as I am this person, I am this body, that person or body seems to us to be uh, real because we are real. And since that person is a small part of the vast universe, the vast universe in dream seems to us to be real. And exactly, this is, this is exactly the same case in, in the waking state, because as Bhagavan made clear to us, this waking state is actually just a dream. So it all seems real so long as we're experiencing it, because we're experiencing ourselves as this, body, this person, this body. So everything else seems to be real. Um, because this person seems to be real. This person seems to be real because we take this person, because we experience this person as if it were ourselves. This is the basic teaching of Advaita Vedanta. Godapada is very, very clear in his Mandukya Karika, which is the first, um, that, that is Advaita Vedanta is based upon the Prasthanatreya. The Prasthanatreya means the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the um, Brahma Sutra. These are called the, the Prasthanatreya means the triple source. So these are the sources on which the um, Advaita is based. As a philosophy, that is. It's actually based on the experience of people, of, well, not even people. It's it's based as a philosophy it's based on uh, these these three sets of texts the oldest of these sets of texts is the Upanishads which are part of the Vedas so the, the Upanishads are the primary source of um of Vedanta but the Upanishads are cater for people at many different levels of understanding. So they can be interpreted in many different ways. Not only can they be interpreted, they have been interpreted in many different ways. That is why there are many different schools of Vedanta, we can say, many different ways of interpreting Vedanta. Advaita is one of them. There's um, uh, uh, Advaita's uh, one, uh, another very ancient one is Veda Abeda Vedanta. That is the con basic contention of Veda Abeda Vedanta is that there, there are differences, but there's non-difference in the differences, and there's difference in the non-difference. It's, um, as Bhagavan pointed out, if there are differences, there's no non-difference. If there are if, there are, if there's, if there's non-difference, then there are no differences. The, you, the two are, 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 if you, in simple, clear view, the two are uh, not, uh, not compact, the two ideas are not compatible. However, there are very, very elaborate arguments that the, um, based on the interpretation of words by which the Beda Beda Vedantins justify their view. Uh, 
So that's also a very ancient one. There's also the Vishistadvaita of Ramanuja. That came after the, after the time of Shankara. And then there's the Dvaita of Madhvacharya. And then there are other schools like Achintya Beda Beda Vedanta. That's a form of Beda Beda Vedanta um, uh, taught by um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his followers. That is what is nowadays known as the Krishna consciousness or Hare Krishna movement. It is the, that is the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, which was started by um, a, a great devotee called uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And there are various other forms of Advaita. There's one form of Advaita called um, uh, Dvaita Advaita Vedanta. There's another form that's called Suddha Advaita Vedanta, Suddha, pure Advaita, but it's actually very dualistic, but it calls itself pure Advaita, uh, Suddha Vedanta. So there are different ways of in, in which the Upanishads can be interpreted. The, um, the first systematic exposition of the Advaitic interpretation of these texts was Godapada's Mandukya Karika. People generally say about Godapada that he taught um, uh, he taught Ajata, but that is that is an oversimplification. Um, Godapada did make it clear, he stated explicitly, but Ajata is the ultimate truth. But what he, the, most of the arguments he gives in Mamandukya Karika is that what we take to be waking is just dream, is just a dream. So what Godapada is actually teaching, the, the principal teaching in um in Go, in Mandukya Karika is Drishti Shrishti Vada. Drishti Shrishti Vada means that there's no creation, Shrishti, independent of Drishti. So Drishti, seeing, comes first. That is, the world exists because we see it, as Bhagavan implies in the first verse of Uludunapadu. Um, so what Godapada was teaching was Drishti Shrishti Vada, which is what Bhagavan is teaching. However, later day, um, it, in classical Advaita, it, it, things got more and more diluted because if you try to broaden the appeal of an, a philosophy, you have to dilute it. So because Advaita was, the followers of Advaita were always trying to defend themselves from the attacks of other schools of Advaita, in order to convince the others, they had to dilute Advaita more and more and more. So. The majority of classical Advaitins take the stance of Shrishti Drishti Vada. Shrishti Drishti Vada is, says that first there's a creation, we are born into it, and then we see it. So cre creation precedes perception. So almost all theories of creation, whether religious theories or scientific theories, all uh, forms of Shrishti Drishti Vada. They all assume that the, what is perceived exists independent of our perception of it. So this world existed long before we were born. It was created in seven days by God as per the Genesis. In Hinduism, there are so many different creation theories. Um, in science, there are different uh, theories. There's the Big Bang theory and 
uh, various other uh, ideas about how this world originated. So all these assume that the world exists independent of our perception of it. That is what uh, Drishti Shrishti Vada, as taught by Bhagavan and Godapada, uh, repudiate. That is, they say, we have no evidence at all that anything exists independent of our perception of it. We never can have. How can we possibly know that anything exists except in our perception of it? That is, what we now experience as the world is just, as Bhagavan points out in verse 6 of Vuludunapadu, the world is nothing but the five kinds of sense impressions. He said, the world is a form of the five sense impressions. Verandru. Verandru means nothing else. So all the world is, is the world consists of sights, sounds, um, uh, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. If we take away these five kinds of sense impressions, where is any world? So according to Bhagavan, the world is nothing but these five kinds of sense impressions. And these these sense impressions are just mental impressions, because who, who is aware of these sense impressions? Who is aware of sights, sounds, tastes, and so on? It's only the mind. Therefore, as Bhagavan concludes that verse, uh, is there a world apart from the mind? In other words, there's no world apart from the mind. This is, this is what is called Drishti Shrishti Vada. This is what Bhagavan taught. This is what Godapada taught. Many people say, oh, no, 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 Godapada didn't teach that. Drishti Shrishti Vada was invented only in the 16th century by, I think, someone called Shiva Prakasha Swamigal. I can't remember his name. I think that was his name. They are confusing the term with the philosophy. That is, the term Drishti Shrishti Vada was coined by this person, I think his name was Shiva Prakasha Swamigal, in around about the 16th century. But that doesn't mean that he, he invented the philosophy. He just he coined a suitable term to describe this philosophy and to distinguish it from all other philosophies, which he calls he called uh, Shrishti uh, Drishtivada. Um, Bhagavan used these terms, but Godapada didn't use these terms because this term hadn't been coined in his time. But what Godapada's teaching in the Mandukya Karaka is clearly Drishti Shrishtivada. So this is the basic um this is the basic principle of Advaita. The Advaitins, there are many Advaitic texts that teach um like um there's a there's one text called Vedanta Sara. I think it's called Vedanta Sara, which is a, a generally taken as a primary text for those who are studying Advaita, classical Advaita, that is. And that goes into an elaborate ex description of how from um, Brahman along with Maya is Ishwara, and from Ishwara this is created, this tattva is created, and that tattva, multiple tattvas are there. Um, Bhagavan's view on all this, as he said, Analyzing all these things is like analyzing the barber's hair in the shop. In, at the end of the day in a, bar, in a barber shop, there'll be so many hairs on the floor. There'll be gray hairs, black hairs, red hairs, blonde hairs. Um, there'll be short hairs, long hairs, multiple curly hairs, straight hairs. All types of hair will be there. What is, what, are you, what is the barber to do with that hair at the end of the day? He's to sweep it up and throw it away because it's rubbish. 
likewise, analyzing all these tattvas, according to Bhagavan, is meaningless because they're all unreal. What is real? The only real tattva is, as he, Bhagavan says in Akshramai, tane, tane, tattvam. One self alone, one self alone is tattva. So there's, truly speaking, there's only one tattva. Tattva literally means thatness, and therefore it implies what is real. So only one thing is real according to Bhagavan and according to Advaita. So analyzing, I mean, describing this creation as is done in Vedanta Sara and so many other um, classic texts of classical Advaita is, is departing far from the essence of Advaita as taught by Godapada and, and taught even more clearly by Bhagavan. So the basic teaching of of Advaita is that, uh, is that there's no creation independent of our perception of it. And implicit, and for that, the classical, um, uh, the classical uh, uh, argument in support of that is dream. Many classical Advaitins take dream to be an analogy. It is not just that the waking state is analogous to a dream. Analogous means it's like a dream. It's not just like a dream. It is, according to Bhagavan and according to Godapada, it is a dream. So in a dream, there's only one dreamer, and only that one dreamer is experiencing the entire dream. But the one dreamer experiences itself as a person within its dream. And therefore, as, this, as the person that it seems to be, it's it's just a small part of the vast universe, but it is its own creation. So, so the dreamer is ego. Ego is the, the the creator of all this, the dreamer of all this, and the dreamer is also the experiencer of it all. So the dream doesn't exist independent of our experience of it. That is Drishti Shrishti Vada. That is what Bhagavan taught. So implicit in that is that there's only one experiencer. But so long as we are experiencing the dream, they appear to be multiple experiences. So this is the arguments I was trying to give here. That is, we are the experiencer of all that we experience. But we experience ourselves as if we were a person. And we experience so many other people who appear to be just like us. And, and I, I went through those arguments. So. Why I gave these arguments, for people who, who don't understand the subtlety of Bhagavan's teachings, if we, like, like Bernardo, had difficulty understanding this because he was so firmly rooted in the idea that he is Bernardo. He was referring, for example, he was saying, my ego. But if we say my ego, it implies that we are something else other than the ego, and the ego is our possession. So I am Michael, and I, Michael, have an ego. That's the imp implication. But the I that is aware of itself as I am Michael, that is ego. So we can't say Michael's ego or Bernardo's ego or anyone else's ego. It's ego, ego's person. That is, it's not Michael's ego, it's ego's Michael. Because e ego, Michael is the person whom ego now takes itself to be. So unless we are able to distinguish ourselves as the experiencer 
from the person we experience ourselves to be. Uh, uh, Bernardo said he was appalled by what I was saying. And it, truly, it would be, I can understand his point of view. It would be appalling to say it if we are taking ourselves to be the person. But it's only when we step back and understand that the person we seem to be is not what we actually are, but all these teachings Bhagavan has given us make sense. So, so Bhagavan never asked us to behave in this world as if we were, we were the only uh, experiencer. Bhagavan, we, we, we can see in Bhagavan's lifetime his compassion. I, um, I, I, told, I told Bernardo about the incident of the hornets um, when Bhagavan uh, allowed his thigh to be stung by the hornets. Um, Bernardo's reaction rather surprised me. I hadn't never thought of it in that way. He said, oh, but hornets will die if they sting. So in effect, he was, uh, he was allowing all those hornets to die. <laughs> that, that's, um, that's a very outward looking way. The point I was talking about was about Bhagavan's compassion, how he, those hornets were angered because Bhagavan's thigh, though he, it was obviously an accident, Bhagavan didn't intend to disturb them, but accidentally he, his thigh disturbed them by brushing against the bush in which their nest was, in which they had their nest. So they took their, they, they were angry and they took their uh, anger out on his thigh. And Bhagavan allowed them to do so because of his compassion for them. There are so many other incidents we can, um, we can refer to in Bhagavan's life. For example, the, when the thieves broke into the ashram, when the, um, the, the thieves beat Bhagavan and some of his devotees, and the devotees were ready to bear when they were beaten, but when they saw the thieves beating Bhagavan, some of them wanted to fight back. But Bhagavan said, let them do what they're doing. They're doing their dharma. They are thieves, and it's the thieves of dharma. It's the dharma of thieves to, to steal and to beat people and so on. We are sadhus. We shouldn't leave our dharma. Um, so Bhagavan was so compassionate to those thieves. And later when the uh, police caught the thieves and brought them before Bhagavan and asked him to identify the one who had um, who had beaten him. Bhagavan said, "Find out the one whom I have beaten. He is the one who has beaten me now." So it, what Bhagavan implies by that, if anything happens to us, it's the fruit of our past karma. So we must have done something to, in the past. Uh, so whoever he beat in the past, it must be the one who beat him now. In the past means obviously not in this lifetime, in some previous lifetime. So Bhagavan was so compassionate to the thieves. He was compassionate to the hornets. He was compassionate to all sentient beings. He was equally kind to the good people, what we would call good people and what we would call bad people. He's equally kind to all because he sees himself in all, because the eye that is shining in each of us, that is Bhagavan, that is what he actually is. Though he seems to us to be a person, what he actually is is the heart, is the eye shining in the heart of all of us, the pure eye. So, um, uh, so but I can see that from Bernardo's perspective, because he wasn't able to make that separation between himself as the experiencer and the person he takes himself to be, it seemed to him that what I was saying is that other people 
are, are not are not experiencing anything. I am the only one who's experiencing. It. That obviously would be appalling if we say that. I that that's privileging the person we take ourselves to be. That is completely missing the point, and that would obviously lead to far greater egotism. If I think I am the only one experiencing all this, I this person, I'm the only one experiencing all this then that's the height of egotism, because then only I matter. The suffering of other people doesn't matter. Only my suffering matters, because only my suffering is real. That is not what I was saying. What I was saying is, we experience suffering only when we take ourselves to be a person. And when we take ourselves to be a person, it seems to be us as this person who is suffering. So because we as this person seem to be suffering, the suffering of every other person is equally real. So it's a very, it's a very subtle and nuanced, that is, Ekajivavada, as taught by Bhagavan, is very subtle and very nuanced. And it's not for, Bhagavan didn't teach us this in order to, for us to behave as if we are the only jiva. We shouldn't behave. We sh but so long as we experience ourselves as I am this body, there seem to be so many other bodies just like us, and they all seem to be just as, 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 as much experience as, as we are. So why did Bhagavan teach Ekajiva Vada? That is made very clear in verse 534 of Guru Kovai. What Bhagavan says here in, in this verse, there are two sentences, I'll read each sentence and then explain the meaning. The first sentence is, Ekane jivan ena kondu idiatul ukum ulla diran uh, That means, accepting that jiva is only one, may the courageous one who has discernment subside in the heart. The implication is that understanding that jiva is only one, we should have the courage and discernment to turn within and uh, by investigating who am I and investigate and, and thereby subside into the heart. So we, what we should investigate is who am I, this one jiva, who is seeing this multiplicity of jivas, is the implication. And then he says, Uhum Malarada Manda Manam Kolla um uh jiva pala aba ena uh um udumpatu what what that means is to soup the mind of dull uh witted people in whom discernment has not blossomed uh conceding that jivas are many what that implies is it's only to suit the mind of dull-witted people in whom such discernment, such uh, such vivaka, such wisdom has not, uh, or such clarity has not yet blossomed, has not yet dawned, do sages and sacred texts uh, speak as if givers are many. So outwardly, when, when, when we're looking outwards, it seems to us that very many jivas, we should behave in this world accordingly. Because who is behaving in this world? The person we seem to be. So as this person, we are just one among so many people. 
And because we take ourselves to be, we the experiencer, take ourselves to be this person, every other person seems to us to be an experiencer. We should behave in this world accordingly. So, so long as we're looking outwards, all the other people seem to us to be experiencers, just like we, we are. And those other people are no less real than the person we take ourselves to be. So, um, so long as we're looking outwards, we need to behave as if nana jiva vada, the, the contention that there are many jivas, we need to behave as if that were true. But the aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to get us to turn within. And in order to turn within, it, it, we are greatly helped in turning within by understanding that all this appears only in my view. None of this entire universe does not exist except in my view. So who am I in whose view all this appears? That is what we need to investigate. So it is to help us to turn within and subside back into the heart, but Bhagavan taught us Drishti Shishti Vada and Ekajiva Vada. So these are very important teachings of Bhagavan, but I, I confess it was probably ill-judged of me to try to take Bernardo so deep into Bhagavan's teaching since he he had very little familiarity with it. He, he's got some uh, familiarity with certain diluted forms of Advaita, but I think this was his first exposure to the deep and radical Advaita, the pure Advaita as taught by Bhagavan. So it was no doubt ill-judged of me, but just for, for the reason I brought up this subject today is because perhaps maybe he'll listen to this and hear these arguments and reconsider. I don't know whether this will help him or not, because we, we, we can't, that is, Bhagavan's teachings will make sense only if we are ready for them. Not everyone is yet ready for Bhagavan's teaching. So we cannot judge who is ready and who is not ready. Uh, Bhagavan alone knows that. And when Bhagavan, when someone is ready, Bhagavan will expose them to his teachings. Um, so it, it was probably not wise of me. But since I, was in, um, since I was invited to take part in that conversation and I agreed, I possibly... Um, expected too much of him and i can i can very much understand his view i understand why he 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 was um i think he said he was appalled by what i was saying i can understand that from his point of view what i was saying would have seemed appalling but if we understand him a light of bhagavan's teachings if we understand him a light of the arguments that i gave at the beginning of this discussion i think well it, 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 some people will understand it, some people won't understand it. And it, ultimately, it doesn't matter. We are not here for convincing other people. We are, as Bhagavan very clearly indicated in, um, in verses 2 and 3 of Uludunapadu, the purpose of these teachings is not to engage in argument with others. The purpose of these teachings is for us to turn within and to cease rising as ego. That is the aim of Bhagavan's teachings, and that is what we each have to follow. But sometimes in the course of our life, we engage in conversation with others who have different views. And we have to respect all other views because everyone is seeing things from their own perspective. This is why in Indian, in, in the, there's no exact equivalent of the term philosophy in 
um, in Sanskrit or other Indian languages. But the equivalent term is darshana. Darshana means view or seeing. So why are there so many different philosophies? Because there are so many different views. People see things in different ways. The, the Daniel Dennett's of this world, they see things in a complete, their view is completely materialistic. They can't see beyond um, the appearance. Uh, Daniel Dennett once described himself, I've, I've heard, he once described himself as a third, third person fundamentalist. Because for him, the, the, the third person, the outside, the outside world is so real. Um, and so he takes even uh, consciousness to be an illusion. Um, that's how he sees things. We, we, it, people understand according to their capacity. So certain people can't, don't have the capacity to see more than that. It's actually, um, it's actually extremely illogical to say, as he says, that uh, consciousness is an illusion. I'm sure he will have some arguments in favor of it, but if we view it simply, because you cannot have an illusion without being conscious. An illusion can exist only if there's something that is conscious of that illusion. So without consciousness, there could be no illusion. So to say that consciousness is an illusion is... Um, it makes no sense at all from our perspective, but from his perspective, obviously, it makes sense. That's how he views things. So there's so many, every philosophy is just a particular view. So we have to respect other people's views because not everyone is given to see things the way we see them. So if we are given to understand Bhagavan's teachings, that is entirely by his grace because the nature of ego is always looking outwards, always grasping form. So the nature of so long as we're going outwards, this outside world seems to be so real. To in order to these things and to be willing to turn within and to really understand these things, we can understand not just by I gave some arguments at the beginning, reasonable arguments, but mere arguments are not sufficient. You cannot convince anyone, however reasonable your arguments may be, you cannot convince anyone by argument unless they're able to see it. So we are fortunate that Bhagavan has, by Bhagavan's grace, we have been given to see these things, to understand these things from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings. But the same Bhagavan who has given us the clarity to understand these things is the same Bhagavan is shining in the heart of everyone. And he's in from within the heart of everyone, he's preparing them to come to eventually to this view. So um Bhagavan's grace is equal for all, but we we just happen to have reached a stage, his grace has matured us to a point where we're able to see these things, but we wouldn't have been able to see before. Previously, we would all have been um Daniel Dennett's at one time, but we've 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 evolved beyond that. Um, but entirely, all this, all spiritual development is only by grace, because without grace is what is grace? Grace is the love that Bhagavan has for us as Himself, and love is His own real nature. He is Himself that love, and that love is our own real nature. So that. That love, that grace, as Bhagavan said, grace is always shining in our heart as our own being, as I am. But 
in order to avail ourselves of that grace, we need to look within. The more we look within, the more our mind will be thereby purified and clarified by grace. So that which is shiny in our heart as I, that light of pure awareness that is shiny in our heart as I, that is grace, that is Bhagavan. And that, is, that alone can give us the clarity to understand these things. So though we can give logical arguments, those logical arguments will, will convince only those who are ready to be convinced by them. So logic has its limitations, everything has its limitations. If we want true clarity, we shouldn't... Reasoning and logic are useful tools, but they're limited tools. If we want real clarity, we need to look within more and more and more. Only to the extent to which we look within can we begin to recognize ourselves as something other than the person we seem to be. We are not, the person we seem to be is something experienced by us. We are the experiencer. So we are distinguishing the, the seer from the scene. That is Drik Drisya Viveka. This is what it's all about. So Drik Drisya Viveka in practice is Atmavichara. We are turning our attention away from what we take ourselves to be, this bundle of adjuncts that we take ourselves to be, this person that we take ourselves to be, and turning our attention back to what we actually are, namely the, that fundamental awareness I am. So I hope this is a useful clarification for some people. It may, it may not be useful for all. I'm sure there are many to whom um, I... I Briefly before this meeting, I looked at that video. I haven't had time to see the video yet. I think it was posted yesterday. I saw there were many comments. And in one of the comments, um, someone wrote about um, Bernard. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know where the video. I'll see if I can find the, the video. There was a comment, comment there in which that person was con congratulating um, Bernardo on... Um, showing up the BS. BS means um, it's a bullshit. So obviously what I was saying appeared to that person to be um, uh, more from my uh, other comment. Wow, BK, that Bernardo Castrap, uh, brilliantly took down his BS, took his BS down. So in the view of some people, all that I'm saying now will be just BS. But um, for other people, it will be clear what is being talked about. So we we will we can never convince people, all people, and we, that's not our job. We're not here to convince people. But uh, when we just uh, because um, obviously it was Bhagavan's will, but for some reason I was engaged in that conversation with um, Bernardo Castro, and maybe I overstepped the limits. But um, who knows? Anyway, nothing happens except by Bhagavan's grace. So it all happened by Bhagavan's grace. And those who understand it will understand it. Those who don't understand it will not understand it. That's just the way things are. Uh, Michael, um, yes. I just um, so this is a, a problem which comes up again and again when one tries to explain uh, in words, in concepts, and so on what what we're talking about in Advaita yeah. Vedanta, especially with Anish, with not just analytical philosophers, but um, even in a common sense way. Now, one of the things is um, the idea of Ikajiva. Now, 
I've sort of been looking at, I mean, when they talk about ekam or eka in a lot of these, uh, if you like, philosophies or darshans, yeah. it's not necessarily the numerical one, to my way of thinking. It's not the one versus the two. Um, it, because there is this thing of ekam, which is, you know, the sort of ground, uh, which is the self or whatever. And when they talk about eka jiva, um, I would still say that it's a kind of a oneness rather than some numerical entity. It is not an entity we're talking about because, of course, there is no such thing. And the reason I'm saying this is because the idea of jiva is just life. It's life, mm -hmm. sentience, it's consciousness, uh, it's mixed up, it's sort of mind and matter mixed together, yeah. whatever it might be. So perhaps it might be more helpful for explaining. Uh, and I have come across this before, especially when you look at the Vedas and so on, that the way of perhaps it's helpful not to talk about it in things which might lend itself to thinking of, of an entity, <laughs> but more in terms of life or awareness or consciousness, which is also matter. You know, this is the old Shiv Shakti and all the rest of it. These are not entities uh, which uh, um, um, it is, I don't know, it's a certain kind of possibility where there is an identification with a particular body as I and mine. And the more you investigate this ego or, or life or whatever you want to call it, the, uh, the more the boundaries of that identification dissolve. And then, as you said last time, and this is sort of uh, a boundaries of what I take to be myself begin to dissolve, the notion of self and other dissolves. And there is much more compassion and, uh, and generosity and uh, self-centeredness. There's not that kind of narcissism, okay? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the idea of us and them begins to dissolve is the opposite of self-centeredness and of yeah. what's taken to be solipsism or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that maybe way of uh, presenting or talking about this idea of ego or, and jiva, I think perhaps, you know, the words also have an effect because then people can pick it apart in certain ways. Uh, I mean, to my mind, because I, I, I'm actually supposed to be writing about this in this book, and um, I'm not going to talk about anything which lends itself to uh, to grasping an entity and, and something which is me, because what we're looking at is that the world appears with myself and everybody else in it, and it is that 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 living that living awareness or that life and so on is what's appearing in the dream in the waking and so on in which because there is this identification with a particular body as i there is a sense of reality also uh, lent to everything else including other experiences and suffering it's something which is there in buddhism as well they also talk about it actually in in very similar terms but i'm just thinking that maybe you know the way we translate some of these terms uh, the way we talk about them. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, could, uh, could, uh, it might be helpful to just change that because if we say something like life, or I mean, I know it's a very general term, and ident but as something which lends itself to identification or, or something, yeah. you know, sort of, uh, I think they talk about consciousness and energy, whatever, you know, it's a mixture of yeah. the two, you know, this yeah. kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and the investigation is the kind of purification in which, you know, all the floss falls away. Yeah, so to speak. yeah. This, is, this is why in this, um, I was, when I gave these, these arguments at the beginning, these 16 points, 
I was, I, rather than using the word jiva or ego, which are the terms that Bhagavan usually, I mean, Bhagavan most commonly uses the word ego, but he makes it clear that what he means by jiva is also ego in verse 24 of Ulutanabdu. But in order to avoid such, um, such terms which others may each interpret in their own way, I simply referred to ourself as the experiencer. Because it's ourself as the experiencer but is what Bhagavan means by ego. As you say, all this appears, but to whom does it appear? It appears only to us as the experience, as, which is what Bhagavan would say is as ego. And so it's only as ego that we see all this. And as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body, I am this person. So there, there is, it, it, we have to admit, there is an entity to whom all this appears. That entity is what I refer to as the experiencer. And in the view of that entity, there seemed to, that experiencer, there seem to be so many other experiencers, so long as we're looking outwards. But when we look within, we detach ourselves from the person we seem to be, and we penetrate through the experience. So we, we se first separate ourselves from the person we seem to be. We distinguish ourselves as the experience of a knower from the person that we experience ourselves to be. And then when we turn our attention towards the knower, we then penetrate through the knower back to the original ground, which is the pure I am. The knower, the experiencer, is that which experiences itself as I am this body. But the, the, the pure awareness that what we actually are, the pure being, is I am. I am bereft of adjuncts. So I am conflated with adjuncts is the experiencer. I am bereft of adjuncts is the reality. That is Brahman, that is Atmasarupa, that is God, whatever we want to say. Um, there are a couple of questions, should we? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, certainly. Um, I think the first question is from Titi. He'd like to ask a question, Titi. Yes, hello. Yeah, Titi. Uh, I, I, um, if I if I turn uh, within totally, fully, uh, okay, what happens with this ego in daily life? Is there anything? E or I am I ego is what is experiencing this daily life. Ego is what is experiencing itself as I am Titi. And uh, okay, in the, in, in, if I am pure awareness, there is no ego life or no, anything. No. But so long as we're looking outwards, we always experience ourselves as a person. So we who experience ourselves as a person and who consequently experience everything else, we are ego. But if we as ego turn our attention back towards ourselves to see what we actually are, there's no such thing as ego to be found. Just like if, if, if you see a, a rope and mistake it to be a snake, the snake seems to exist 
so long as you don't look at, the, look at it carefully enough. But if you want to find out what is this snake, is it a cobra or a grass snake, or is it a poisonous snake or a harmless snake? If you look at the snake very carefully, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake at all, it's just a rope. Likewise, if we who now seem to be ego, look at ourselves carefully enough, we'll see that there's no such thing as ego at all. What we actually are is just pure awareness. When we remain as pure awareness, then we alone exist. But so long as we rise as ego, there seem to be others. There seems to be this vast universe full of so many other uh, others. Because we seem to be a person, there seem to be so many other people who are just like us. And there seems to be all this multiplicity. But it, the multiplicity appears only because we rise as ego and consequently look outwards. If we instead we look within, ego will dissolve forever and we will remain as we actually are. And uh, can be both? Pure awareness and ego in the same time? No. You are always pure awareness, even when you seem to be ego. But the rope doesn't cease to be a rope when it seems to be a snake. But so long as it seems to be a snake, there seems to be only a snake, no rope there at all. It's only a snake. So it seems. But if you look at the snake carefully enough, you'll see, oh, there never was a snake. It was always only a rope. Likewise, so long as, so long as we rise as ego, ego seems to be all there is. I mean, ego and everything that it experiences seem to be all there is. But if we as ego turn our attention back to see what we actually are, we will see that we were always pure awareness and nothing other than pure awareness ever existed. Yeah, yeah and everything disappears, like, and the ego disappears. When ego disappears, everything must disappear along with it because everything appears only in the view of ego. Yeah. So Bhagavan's teachings are very, very simple, but extremely deep and radical. Very radical, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very too much. Radical, too radical for us. That is why we're still here talking about this, because we are not yet, we are not yet ready to let go of this false identification. So we try to turn within, but we, why we are not able to go deep enough within because we're not yet ready to surrender ourselves. We're not re ready to let go of this false identification. Yes. I, Michael, want to know myself. So long as I know myself as Michael, I don't know myself as I actually am. So I cannot know myself as Michael and know myself as I actually am at the same time. So without letting go of this false identification, I am Michael, I can never know myself. When I know myself, then there's no such thing as Michael or anything else at all. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So they, this is, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely simple, but they, in order to put it into practice, requires the, the greatest love, the, such great love that we are willing to give up everything for the sake of what we actually are. So we're ready to sacrifice all that we take ourselves to be. The reason we, we, we the re, Bhagavan has said, knowing 
knowing oneself is extremely easy. There's nothing easier than knowing oneself. But to us, it seems to be so difficult. Only because we're not yet willing to surrender ourselves, we're not willing to let go of this false identity. So this is the this is the ultimate supreme achievement to to give up everything that we take ourselves to be and just to be as we always actually are. Actually, we've not achieved anything. When we achieve that, we've not achieved anything because we remain as we always actually are. As Bhagavan said, there's nothing new to be achieved. But what we need to achieve is to, is to give up everything that we, that is, that we now uh, take ourselves to be. Bhagavan sometimes, Bhagavan generally spoke only in, in Tamil or other South Indian languages, but he understood some English. And occasionally he would speak in English when it would carry a desired effect. So talking about the English word realization, because people talk about describe Atmanyan is described in English as self-realization. Bhagavan said, how to realize what is always real. What is always real doesn't need to be realized. The problem is that we've realized the unreal. So all that is required is that we unrealize the unreal and the real alone will remain. Bhagavan said this in English for, because, because of this English, I mean, he could say it meaningfully only in English, so he said it in English. So we are not, there's nothing new for us to achieve, but from our perspective as ego, the great achievement is to cease being ego. To, to merge back in our source and be as we always actually are. So it's not an achievement, but from our perspective as ego, it seems to be a great achievement. So we, we are here because we, we, we didn't realize ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the aim of Vedanta, all Vedantins will enter, is Sukha Prapti Dukkha Nivriti, the attainment of happiness and the removal of misery. But the happiness we are seeking to attain is what we always actually are. And the misery we are seeking to remove is what was ever non-existent. So it is, we are seeking to achieve that which is always achieved, namely happiness, which is our own real nature, and to remove what, what never actually existed, which is ego and all its suffering. Yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, the next question. Uh, the next question is uh, a document. It's a bit. Yeah. So it's a long question. Um, it says that in Nanyar questions ten and uh, sorry in Nanyar sections ten and eleven. Bhagwan is clearly asking us to ask the question when thoughts of any kind arise. Colon, to whom has this thought arisen? The answer that would emerge would be to me. Thereupon, if one inquires, who am I, the mind will go back to its source. He goes on to say that if this process is repeated, 
and repeated. The mind which is ego will learn to stay in the source, which is called inwardness, which I presume is the annihilation of the ego. I presume that is what is meant. So I have several queries regarding this. Firstly, the answer that would emerge would be to me. Doesn't seem to happen that way for me. It just seems to appear in my awareness, which is obviously the awareness of the ego and by inference mine or to me. So in practice, I have to fill in the answer to me in order to continue with Bhagwan's instructions and ask, who am I? Which brings me to the second point. In your satsangs, you have often said that Bhagwan doesn't mean to ask the question, but to just look instead as if it is an investigation, which is not how it comes across in Nanyar. So if I do what Bhagwan says and ask the question, who am I? My mind goes blank, but I'm sort of aware of blankness or emptiness until such time as thinking starts up again. I then repeat the process. From listening to you, Michael, and reading... Uh, Sadhu Om's The Path of Sri Ramana, it would appear that that is not the correct way to do self-inquiry. Is that so? So should I try to be getting an answer to who am I during the blankness? Because the heading of paragraph 11 is, what is the means for constantly holding on to the question, who am I? Is that the same as holding on to the I or staying in the I am? Or should I be just resting in thoughtlessness as being? Is that paying attention to the self? There seems to be a few things going on here, in particular holding on to the question, who am I? Or holding on to being. But just doing the question, to whom have these thoughts come? And following the direction indicated by the answer, to me, I have in fact had experience of holding on to a sense of being, which seemed in part to be located in the chest area generally not the spiritual heart center. And at the same walk and talk, and at the same walk and talk or watch telly in a detached kind of way for a few hours. It was like a split awareness. This seems to be the state you have mentioned as being as being like partially paying attention to being, that is oneself or the self, which is what is referred to as I am. During the state, very few thoughts appeared and were ignored, but I was not clearly aware of my surroundings nor could I follow what was on telly very well. So my question is, is this what is meant by self-attention? Um, firstly, the, regarding Nana, um, the, the, the problem lies in the translation. Bhagavan never said, ask who to whom. Um, the portion that... Um, that uh, <coughs> that is in questions 10 and 11 in the question and answer version, when Bhagavan rewrote uh, Nana in the form of an essay. So that's in the sixth paragraph of the essay. What he says in the, um, in the sixth paragraph of the essay is, um, a, a correct translation of it is, um, if other thoughts rise, Without trying to complete them, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. The words in Tamil are, um, um, wait a second, Pira Enangal Erendal. If other thoughts rise, Abhatre Purti 
Panavataku et Nayama without trying to complete them. Abe Yaraku Undayana Indru Bicharika Vendam. Bicharika means investigate. So it is necessary to investigate to whom they have arisen or to whom they have appeared. Um, this verb Bichari, it is the sense in which Bhagavan uses it is in the sense of investigate. Bichari can also be used in the sense of inquire. And inquire can mean ask. So the translators have often misunderstood what Bhagavan is talking about. Bhagavan said on so many occasions when people asked him about this, that it is not just about asking a, a question. In fact, Bhagavan wrote a verse particularly referring to this misunderstanding in <clears throat> yes, in the second verse of Vichara Sangraham, he says, um, the, the, the meaning in English is, declare a drunkard who mutters, who am I, what place am I, to be equal to one who asks once, who, one who asks once, who oneself asks oneself, who am I, what is the place in which I am, even though oneself exists as oneself. So here Bhagavan, many people misinterpret this verse as, oh, Bhagavan is, is, um, is, is uh, someone asked me about this the other recently, I can't remember who it was. And I explained, no, it, what Bhagavan is saying here, he's not, he's not criticizing the self-investigation. What he's criticizing is the misunderstanding. People who take self-in-question investigation just to be a matter of asking the questions, who am I, what is the place where I am? That is not what Bhagavan means by self-investigation. So he wrote this verse particularly to, to, to drive home that point. It is not just about asking questions. So what he means here by the verb vichari is investigate, not inquire. That is, the English word inquire can be used in two senses. You can use inquire in the sense of ask. Um, you can say to someone, um, or when you when you meet her, please inquire, or please inquire about the welfare of her mother or something like that. There, inquire means ask. But inquire can also be used in the sense of investigation. But here, Bhagavan is using this verb vichari in the sense of investigation, not in the sense of asking. So what he says is, when other thoughts of, uh, if when other thoughts, if other thoughts rise, without trying to complete them, in other words, without following on that train of thought, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. What does it mean investigating to whom? To whom does everything appear? It appears to us. So investigate what Bhagavan means by investigating to whom. We need to turn our attention away from the thought back towards ourselves, the one to whom it has appeared. And then he goes on to say, However many thoughts arise, so what? Jagratei obvoru ennum kalambum pode idu yaraku and dietru endru vicharital Enakendru Endru Tondrum. That means uh, um, vigilantly, as and when each thought arises, to, 
if one investigates vigilantly, to whom does this arise? Enakendru Tondrum. Enakendru Tondrum is not talking about... Enakendru Tondrum means it will be clear to me. It doesn't mean an answer. He's not talking about an answer to me. That is, if we turn our attention back to ourselves, it'll be clear that everything that appears, all thoughts, all phenomena, anything that appears, it appears to whom? To, to me, it appears. But he's not talking about the words. He's not... He's, He's using these words to describe the subtle process of turning our attention away from whatever appears back towards ourself. So when we turn our attention back towards ourself, what becomes clear is our own existence. So that's what he means by enakendru tondrum. It appears, it, it will be clear to me. And then he goes on to say, nana indru vicharital. If one in investigates who am I, Manam tam pirapiratiku tirumbi vidum. The mind will return to its birthplace. So, what does he mean by investigating who am I? As I said, investigating to whom means turning our attention away from whatever appears back towards ourselves. But when we <clears throat> turn our attention back towards ourselves, what should we then do? We should hold on to ourselves. We should hold on to that self-attentiveness. That's what he means by nana indravicharital, if one investigates who am I. So investigating to whom is turning our attention towards ourselves. Investigating who am I is holding on to that self-attentiveness. If we hold on to that self-attentiveness, the mind will return to its birthplace. Its birthplace means its source, the place from which it rose. In other words, our own being. Erin the thought that had risen will subside, will, will, will also subside. That is, why will the thought subside? Thoughts exist only so long as we attend to them. If we don't attend to them, they can't, they, they can't rise of their own accord. So if we turn our attention away from the thought back towards ourselves, the mind will thereby subside in its source, and the thought will also the thought that arisen will also subside. And then he goes on to say, Ipiti paraka paraka, manatiku tampiripiditil tanginikam shakti adikari kindradu. By practicing and practicing in this way, the, the, for the mind, the strength, the strength or power to abide, to remain firmly established in its source, in its birthplace, will increase. So what he means is, whenever, when a thought arises, that means our attention has gone away from ourselves towards the thought. So what should we do? We should turn our attention back to ourselves. That's what he means by investigating to whom it has appeared. Whatever may appear, it, it, nothing can appear except to ourselves. So when we, instead of attending to whatever appears, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. And having turned our attention back, we then need to hold on to ourselves. We need to hold on to that I am, but alone remains when we turn our attention back to ourselves. If we hold on firmly to I am, the mind will thereby subside in its, in its source, and the thought that arisen will subside. And if we but sooner or later, we'll, again, our attention will be, dis, uh, dis, will be uh, drawn outwards by thought. If our thought, attention is again drawn outwards, what do we do? We turn it back again towards ourselves. So by practicing and practicing in this manner, 
the strength to remain firm, to hold on firmly to self-attentiveness and thereby remain in our source uh, will increase. So this has got nothing to do with asking the question, who am I? Or asking the question to whom? Or getting the answer to me? He, Bhagavan doesn't mean getting the answer to me. It'll be clear to me. That is, when we turn our attention away from whatever appears, back to one to whom it appears, it'll be clear to me that everything is appearing. What by vast universe, to whom does it appear? To me. So, and then having turned our attention back to that me, we need to hold on to that me. In other words, we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. So that is what Bhagavan is describing there. So Bhagavan made it very clear later in Nana, in the 16th paragraph, he very, very clearly defines what he means by Atmavichara. He says, um, uh, um, Sadakalamum manate atmavil ve tiruptakutan atmavicharam endrupaya. What that literally means is the name atmavichara is only for always keeping the mind uh, in oneself. What does it mean keeping the mind in oneself? If you keep your or in oneself or on oneself, if you keep your mind on something, that means you keep your attention on it. So keeping the mind on ourself means keeping our attention fixed on ourself. And he says that alone is what is called Atmavichara. So Atmavichara means nothing other than self-attentiveness. So merely asking ourselves questions, who am I, to whom did this thought occur, that's floating on the surface. That's not going deep within. If we want to go deep within, we need to turn our attention away from whatever appears back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. And then we need to hold on to that self-attentiveness. To the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we will thereby subside within and everything else will disappear. And if we go on um, uh, persistently practicing this, we'll gain more and more strength to remain firmly established in our source. And the source is not, you, uh, in the question it was mentioned about some place in the chest. The chest is, the, the body is an object known by us. Every place in the body is an object known by us. So long as our attention is on the body or any place in the body, our attention is going outwards, away from ourselves. To whom does this, according to Bhagavan, this body, the whole entire body is just a thought. So to whom did this thought appear? To me, who am I? We need to turn our thing back to ourselves and hold on to ourselves, ignore the body. Because how can we let go of the body by attending to it? We can let go of the body and the false identification, I am this body, only by turning our attention back towards I am and holding on to I am alone. So I hope that answers that question adequately, but if the person who asked that question has anything further they'd like to ask on this. But I, all this confusion arises by many of the people who have translated what Bhagavan wrote or who have recorded what he said, they themselves didn't have a deep and subtle understanding. They hadn't put this into practice. But that, that um, translation of Nana um, that you refer to the question and answer version, that was translated by T.M.P. Mahadevan. He was a professor of philosophy in Madras University. He was no doubt a very brilliant philosopher, but he didn't have a, 
a practical understanding of Bhagavan's teachings. So he failed to understand what Bhagavan is actually talking about here. So Bhagavan's teachings is more than just a philosophy. It's a science, it's an art. We need to actually put it into practice. Or we, will, we cannot understand what Bhagavan is saying without putting it into practice. Only to the extent to which we actually put it into practice, actually turn within, will we get the clarity to understand what that is what Bhagavan is referring to when he tells us to turn our attention back within. That cannot be adequately expressed in words. But he, Bhagavan is pointing us in the right direction. But we need to understand what he is pointing at. He's pointing us at ourselves. So it, it requires a certain level of, um, of a certain depth and subtlety of understanding, you know, even to understand what the practice is. Many people who recorded, people who recorded books like talks day by day and so on, these people didn't even understand what the practice is. That's why there's so much confusion in what they recorded. What Bhagavan says is very clear. Sometimes Bhagavan has to dilute his teaching to see the, the questioner, but even when he does so, he does so in a very subtle and nuanced way. So those who have a deeper understanding will understand that though Bhagavan seems to have diluted his teaching, he's actually saying the same thing in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in other words. He's pointing back at the... Because Bhagavan's, Bhagavan appeared in this world for one reason and one reason alone. Appeared in this world means appeared in this dream of ours for one reason and one reason alone. That is to turn our attention back to ourselves. So the whole purpose of Bhagavan's teachings Everything that Bhagavan taught us, it all had this one aim in mind. Earlier I was talking about the Ekajiva Vada, the Drishti Shishti Vada, these, these teachings of Bhagavan. These all have one purpose and one purpose alone, to make us turn our attention back to ourselves. To whom does all this, all this world seems to exist, but to whom does it seem to exist? To me. Who am I? We need to turn our attention back to ourselves. That doesn't mean we have to ask for questions. That is a way of describing turning our attention away from other things back towards ourselves. When he said there's only one, one ego, one jiva, what does, he, what does he expect us to understand from that? Oh, if there's only one ego, then who am I, this one ego? We need to turn our attention back to ourselves. So the sole aim of all of Bhagavan's teachings, if we understand correctly, is to turn our attention back to ourselves. If we don't understand that, we haven't understood Bhagavan's teachings. So anyone who translates vichari as question, they clearly have not understood what Bhagavan is talking about, because Bhagavan isn't talking about just asking questions. Bhagavan isn't a mere philosopher asking us to ask questions and get answers. Yes, Bhagavan did talk philosophy. He did give reasonable arguments to... to help us to view, under, see things from the point of view he wants us to see things. But all the philosophical arguments are all pointing us back towards ourselves. So philosophy of any kind is useful. In fact, any books, any writing, any words are useful only to the extent to which they turn our attention back towards ourselves. That is the sole aim of all of Vedanta ultimately. When a Vedanta says there is one only without a second, and you are that, what should we do? Oh, if I am that, then what am I? We need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. So it's what, 
that is the ultimate aim of the Vedas. That is the ultimate aim of the, the, um, the Upanishads. That is the ultimate aim of Vedanta, is to turn our attention back towards ourselves. As Bhagavan sings in Aksharamlai, Vedantate Vedera Vilangam Veda Aranachala. Give me the, uh, grant me the, the, the meaning or the import of the substance of the Vedas, which shines in Vedanta as one as without another. That, that implies as one without a second. So in, the implication of that is enable me to experience what the Vedas ultimately are pointing at, which is the one thing that actually exists, namely I am. That is the whole purpose, not only of Bhagavan's teachings, it's the whole purpose of, <coughs> it's the ultimate purpose of the Vedas, of the Vedanta. In fact, it's the ultimate purpose of all religions. Even Christ said, look, see, the kingdom of God is within you. He didn't just say, the kingdom of God is within you, believe me. He said, look, see. So you have to look and see. So a religion or a philosophy is useful only to the extent it turns our attention back within to see what we actually are. Because what is actually real, tane, tane, tatavam. One self alone is the reality, as Bhagavan says in Akramlai. Tane kartavayaranachala. You yourself show this to me. So how can Aranachya show it to us if we don't look? If we are self of reality and we want Aranachya to show it to us, we need to look at ourselves. We can't expect, we can't look outwards and expect Aranachya to show us ourselves. So long as we're looking outwards, we're looking in the wrong direction. That's why in the next, very next verse, Bhagavan gives what Aranachya's reply is. Tirambiyaham. Dinam aha tane dinam aha kankan terium Turning within, see yourself daily with the inner eye, it will be known. So, in order to know ourselves as the sole reality, we need to constantly turn our attention within. So, this is the whole aim of Aksharam Lai, Arunachas Dutipanchikam, Uludu Napadu Nana, Upadeshundia, Amma all of Bhagavan's works. This is the ultimate aim. This is what Bhagavan is constantly dinning in again and again and again and again. Because this is, otherwise, we're just counting, we're just analyzing Baba's hair, the hair in the Baba's shop. That's useless. We need to investigate and know what we ourselves actually are. Everything else is mere rubbish. Um, I'll go on to the next question. Um, yeah. The next question is in two parts. It seems that acceptance of the unreality of multiple experiences would, or experiencers would have a negative effect on concepts like altruism, compassion, etc. And then the nature of the self is loving. Is not is it not true that this loving nature would include loving the appearance and externality? I think we've yeah, yeah. discussed it. Yeah, yes, but it, it's an important because this this is this is where um, Bernardo had what he had difficult because to him it seemed to it seemed that I was I was contradicting myself when I was talking about the importance of compassion. But what I tried to explain to him is. To the extent to which we look within, we thereby separate ourselves from the person we seem to be. To the extent that this identification that I am this person, I am just this little person, is dissolved, to that extent, 
we when we look outwards we 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 see ourselves in others not of course so long as there's ego we do still experience the separation but the, that the, the the barriers the, the boundaries erected by ego are dissolved more and the more and more we look within so compassion and um empathy and care for others will naturally arise in us to the extent to which we go within so uh, viewed from a purely philosophical point of view without understanding the subtleties of what Bhagavan is talking about it's I can see that from Bernard's point of view and what I was talking was it was I was contradicting myself because I was talking about the importance of um of compassion but I was refusing to he wanted me to admit that other people are are sentient I all I what I was saying to him is it seems so but then he said that how can you say that you need uh, compassion I mean that's basically what he, what he was implying but what I was saying what I was trying to explain to him is not only the other people seem to be sentient the person we seem to be seems to be sentient why because we take ourselves to be that person but what we but we are not that person that person that we take ourselves to be is an object experienced by us it is drissia we who experience that person are drick we need to distinguish that this is drick drissia vivica distinguishing the knower from the known the seer from the seen the experiencer from what is experienced so this person what what makes up this person it's a five what Bhagavan and Vedanta refers to as the panchakosha the five sheaths that is the physical body the life that animates it and the mind intellect and will that function within it we this is these collectively make up the person we take ourselves to be but these are all things known by us we know this body it's an object we can see it we can we can feel it we can um we can taste it if we bite ourselves we can smell it we 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 know this body through the, we can hear ourselves talking we know this body it's through all the five senses we know this body so this body is clearly an object but prana the life in this body is an object we experience it as breathing heartbeat uh, all the physiological functions of a of a of a, that is prana manifests in our body in the form of these um life manifests in this our body in the form of all these physiological functions the mind the mind in this context means the grosser functions of the mind perceptions memories thoughts feelings emotions and so on these are all things known by us they're all objects the intellect and its workings are known by us the will consisting of in its grosser form consisting of likes dislikes desires attachments and so on and in its subtler form consisting of vasanas which are the seeds that arises all these likes and dislikes and so on these are all things known by us so they're all objects but who are we the knower of them we are so we need to distinguish ourselves from the things that are known when we distinguish ourselves from the things that are known we separate ourselves from this person that is the attack the identification is still there but it's be the more we turn within the more this identification is dissolved the more the identification is dissolved the more the more we're able to the, the, the more the 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 veiling is removed from our eyes and the more we're able to see other people's suffering as our own suffering 
So we naturally feel, as Bernardo pointed out, compassion means to suffer with. So yes, when we see others suffering, we suffer with them. Because we see it as ourselves suffering in that. We see ourselves in them. So compassion, however illogical it may seem to those who have not put this into practice, to anyone who has put this into practice, it would be very clear. But, but um, compassion will increase to the extent to which we go within. And the supreme example of that is Bhagavan, who was the very embodiment of compassion. So we shouldn't just try to understand these things with the outlook-looking mind. We can understand these things only to the extent to which we look within. If we don't look within, all these things will seem as that person wrote in a comment. <laughs> but uh, um, what I what he implied in the comment was talking BS, and Bernardo was brilliantly brought down my BS. That's how he views it, because he's got an outward-looking mind. So long as you're looking outwards, all this will seem to be nonsense. We can understand Bhagavan only to the extent to which we look within. We need to look within more and more and more. Then only we will truly understand what Bhagavan is talking about. If you, if you just see a map, you get a rough idea of the layout of whatever country it is that is being depicted in that map. But you will, the map will become meaningful to you to the extent to which you go to that country and explore. And then you see all the features that are represented on the map. You see what those features actually are. Like that, Bhagavan's teachings are a map. But the map will become meaningless, sorry, meaningful to us only to the extent to which we, 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 we follow the map and go within. The more we go within, the more meaningful Bhagavan's words will become to us. The more blindingly obvious it will be that what Bhagavan is saying is the truth. Uh, Shalini, can, Kitty has asked whether she can ask a question. Can I ask for her question? Um, actually, there's... Uh... Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Uh, Kitty, would you Sorry, like to yeah. Ask yeah, I just happened to um, watch your video with Bernardo this morning, actually, yes. three hours. It's quite a long discussion. I'm yes. very impressed by the, your uh, explanation in the first section about the, the details, how if you, if you live as ego, you, you have to keep grabbing because of the insecure and then the separateness. Yes. But I think it's, yeah, it, it, this discussion actually is very, um, it's very helpful for clear the, I mean, this discussion between like uh, um, you and Bernardo. And also I watched your discussion with uh, uh, Swami um, Sava Pad. Yeah, in New York the other day. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It, yeah, it is very um, helpful to clear some concepts. But uh, yeah, you, you mentioned about the um, there's only one ego, and uh, but the thing is, like uh, you see, um, people like about karma. Um, people seems to have different karma because people's the experience are different. Um, I mean, they suffer differently, or they enjoy differently. So, um, I mean, from this point of view, actually, there's everything is an illusion. There's no karma, actually, 
karma is also illusion. Karma is all part of the illusion. But so long as we identify ourselves, so so long as we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as a person. A person means the bundle of body, mind, and so on. So whatever, so we, whatever. So we experience different karma in that sense. Yes, because whatever actions are done by the mind, speech, or body. Are experienced by us as I am doing this. I am thinking. I am talking. I am sitting. I am standing. I am walking. All these things, because we identify ourselves with this body and mind. Whatever actions are done by this body and mind are experienced by us as actions done by ourselves. And the actions that we do under the sway of our vasanas—that means under the sway of our will. The actions we do in order to experience this or that, those actions will bear fruit, and the fruit of those actions is what we experience as our destiny. So, karma involves uh, doership and experiencership. That is, as the doer, we do the karma; as the experiencer, we experience the fruit of the karma. So, as Bhagavan says in verse thirty-eight of Uludunapadu, if one self is the doer, vine mudal namayin vile payin tripom. If we are a doer of actions, we will experience the resulting fruit. Vine mudal ar endru vinavi tanne arya. When one knows oneself, investigating uh, who is the doer of action. Uh, Kartrutvam poy, doership will depart. Karmum mundrum karalam, all the three actions will slip off. So, so long as we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as a person, as a body consist, as a bundle consisting of mind and body, and so on. Whatever actions are done by this person are experienced by us as actions done by us, and we will therefore have to experience the resulting fruit. But if we investigate ourselves, who now seem to be the doer of action, and thereby know what we actually are, we ego will thereby be destroyed. So doership and experiencership will depart, and without doership and experiencership, there can't be any karma. All the three karmas will cease to exist. So yes, as you say, karma is just an illusion, but this illusion seems to, like all other illusions, it seems to be real so long as we take ourselves to be a body. Okay, but、uh, after you, I mean, and if you stop incarnate incarnation, you if、mm. you stop incarnation, unless you stop incarnation. Then you you can't help of、uh, mistaking this ego, isn't it? That that is, incarnation means birth. We are born. Why? What is born? What is born is the body. So we become we, another ego. But it's not another ego. There's only one ego. But but when we when we when we rise as ego, we take a body to be ourselves. In a dream. You, as soon as you start dreaming, you experience yourself as a body. So the whole of our present life is just a dream. Yeah, but how to stop the dream? I mean, people、uh, right. recognize themselves. Yeah, but so, it's not permanently. Then how to avoiding? So long as we're looking outwards, we are the dreamer, and so long as the dreamer exists, the dreaming will continue. So the problem is the root problem. 
is the dreamer. We seem to be the dreamer only when we don't experience ourselves as we actually are. That is, as the dreamer, we are, the dreamer is ego. Ego is that which is always aware of itself as I am this person. The person it takes itself to be can change, but it always experiences itself as a person. So that is a false awareness of ourself because this person is not what we actually are. So in order to put an end to the dream, we need to put an end to the dreamer. And in order to put an end to a dreamer, the dreamer, namely ourself as ego, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. If we know ourselves as we actually are, ego is thereby annihilated. Ego is the dreamer, so the dreamer is annihilated. Without a dreamer, there can't be any dreams. So the solution to um, birth and death is to know what we actually are, because what we actually are is ever unborn and ever undying. But this recognition is once and for all, or is gradually stabilized? Once and for all, because our existence as ego is itself unreal. We seem to be ego um, only so long as we we are looking outwards. But if we investigate ourselves, if we look at ourselves carefully, we will see that we were never ego. That is why liberation is eternal. Eternal doesn't mean it begins from the moment we get liberated and continues forever. Liberation, eternal mean, doesn't mean time. Eternal means beyond time. What we, what we actually are, we are always that. So this ego is entirely unreal. It seems to be real only so long as we're looking outwards. If you see a, a, a rope and mistake it to be a snake, if you look at the snake carefully enough, you'll see it's just a rope. Once you've seen it as a rope, you can never again mistake it to be a, a snake. So it's once and for all. Once the snake is, once the illusory snake is removed, it can never return. Because okay, once you see the snake rope as a rope. Ones, hmm? Yeah, but the enlightened ones you mentioned come into our dream. They like, appear in our dream. That is Bhagavan, for example, or Buddha, or any 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 yeah. enlightened they, one. They appear they, in our dream. But, but they uh, appear they in, in our dream to wake us up. They are not part of the dream. That is, but, but they appear in human form. That human form is a part of our dream. But, so the, but, do they choose to do that, or that is karma? That is, what appears in the form of Bhagavan or Buddha is our own self, our own real nature, what we actually are, the pure I am. That is what appears in our dream in the form of Bhagavan or in the form of Buddha in because order to of... tell us the term within. And to, to, so why, why do they do so? Because our real nature, what we actually are, is the, the pure I am, is infinite love. So out okay. of the infinite love, Bhagavan appears, that is, our own self, our own real, what we actually are, has appeared to, in our dream as Bhagavan in order to tell us the term within. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks. Right, right. Thanks. Shalini, were there any other questions? Yes, there are some. Um, there's a comment uh, and then a question. 
question. Um, the comment has to do with the, the story about hornets. And it said, hornets do not die when they sting. Their stinger has no barb. And there is a contradiction in the hornet story that, uh, uh, in the hornet story, in that after a day or so, the stingers were removed from Bhagavad's leg, and also a spider will eat its own web after it is released from its spinnerets. Um, ego is chit it can't see other than from its point of view. So that seems more of a comment. And then there's a question. And this is, uh, is it correct to say that the appearances of individualized eyes are just appearances on the substrata of awareness, where the substrata of awareness is, is akin to the metaphoric rope and the individualized egos, uh, the eye ego, are the metaphoric snake. All of these debates are just futile. It's only when one practices and sees for oneself that things become clearer. Thinking can never lead to it, as it takes you in the opposite direction. Thinking and I just want to, and he goes on to, to say that I just want to share some non-dual poems from the perspective of a seeker on the journey that some might uh, find useful. I think he's uh, written to them. Oh, sorry, but that's for the group. Sorry. Okay. So, um, sorry, I'm just going to say something. Um, Sorry, can you read just the, the bit before that? Because I was about to answer one thing there and I've forgotten now. Okay. <clears throat> before the poem, the last bit. Um, yeah, so the question is, is it correct to say that the appearances of individualized eyes are just appearances on the substrata of awareness, where the substrata of awareness is akin to the metaphoric rope and the individualized eye or, or ego are the metaphoric snake. All of these debates are just futile. It's only when one practices and sees for oneself that things become clearer. Thinking can never lead to it as it takes you in the opposite direction. Uh, yes, that, that is correct, except for saying thinking is never... Thinking is useful if we are thinking in the right way, because thinking, analyzing these things in the correct way, as Bhagavan has taught us to analyze them, helps to point our attention back to ourselves. So Bhagavan's teachings, Bhagavan's teachings consist of ideas, but those ideas are very useful ideas because they're ideas that are pointing our attention back towards ourselves, but are impressing upon us the need to turn back within and to see what we actually are. So we, we shouldn't totally, 99.99999% of thought is taking us outwards, but the thought contained in Bhagavan's teachings is pointing our attention back within. So that's what I said earlier, philosophy or religion or science or whatever, it's useful only to the extent to which it turns our attention back towards ourselves. So those thoughts that encourage us to look within, but impress upon us the need to look within, but enable us to understand why we looking within is the only worthy undertaking. These thoughts are useful to the extent to which we actually follow up on them and turn our attention within. So yes, absolutely. What is, 
all this is all talk and all discussion is useless if it doesn't help us to turn within. So any discussion, any philosophy, any talk of any kind is useful. Any book of any kind is useful only to the extent to which it encourages us to turn within. Because the real clarity does not lie outside. It does not lie in the, the words or the thoughts. It, clarity lies only within ourselves. So the words and thoughts are useful only to the extent to which they point us our attention back within to where the real clarity lies. This is why Bhagavan said, Bhagavan said repeatedly, the real teaching is not just the word. The real teaching is the silence. So if the real teaching is silent, why did Bhagavan give us teaching in words? In order to point us back at that silence, which is ever shining in our heart as our own being. But the real clarity comes only from the silence of our own being, which is ever shining in our heart as I am. So only by looking more and more within do we get the real clarity. So the, the words are useful. Understanding Bhagavan's teachings is useful in order because it, without understanding Bhagavan's teachings uh, clearly, we will not even understand what it means to turn within. Many people are still struggling to understand what it even means to turn within. Well, one or two of the earlier questions uh, illustrate that. People, what is so? Oh, one question I was asked earlier, but uh, that person who asked about Nana, one part of their question that I forgot to answer is if we just still the mind, is that um, self attentiveness? No, we still the mind every night when we fall asleep, but that is not self attentiveness. Um, Recently, someone wrote a comment on my blog asking whether if we stop if we stop attending to anything else, is that self-attention? No, it's not. We we need to turn our attention back to ourselves. So it's not me if if you merely withdraw our attention from all other things, the mind will subside in mano layer. That sleep is an example of that. When we're too tired to continue thinking. We're too tired to continue attending to anything else. We stop attending and we subside in sleep. But sleep is only a state of manolaya. Manolaya means a temporary dissolution of mind. So from manolaya, the mind will always rise again. Likewise, in yoga, they use pranayama as a technique to stop thinking, in other words, to stop attending to anything other anything else. But that doesn't mean attending to oneself. So the yogis subside in Nivikalpa Samadhi, which as Bhagavan clarified, is just a state of manolaya. So Bhagavan has said, as Bhagavan made clear in verse 14 of Upadesha Undiya, only if the yogi who stills the mind by um, pranayama without, before subsiding in Manolaya, he doesn't say it in quite so many words, but this is the implication, before subsiding in Manolaya, they need to send the mind on the investigating path, the Orvari, the path of investigation. That means a path of self-investigation. In other words, they need to turn their attention within. So merely withdrawing our attention from other things will result in, the mind will subside in layer. In order to destroy the mind, in order for the mind to, to subside in NASA, in permanent destruction, we need to attend to ourselves. So the thoughts are useful, the, the ideas, the words are useful only to the extent to which they turn our attention within. 
So whenever our attention comes outwards, it's useful to dwell on the words, to think about what Bhagavan's taught us, because that encourages us to turn with him more and more. I hope that adequately answers that question. I just add one more thing to that. Regarding this giving up thought, in verse 16 of Upadeshundiya, Bhagavan makes it particularly clear. <coughs> he starts by saying, Veli videngale vittu. Veli videngale vittu means uh, letting go of external phenomena, leaving or letting go of external phenomena. Manam tan oli uru ordale, the mind knowing its own form of light, unmayonichiyami. That is real knowledge. That is real awareness, true awareness. What does he mean by the mind knowing its own form of light? Its form of light means its form of awareness, the light of pure awareness I am. So in that verse, from a, from a grammatical structure of the verse, we can understand the relative importance Bhagavan gives. That is manam tan ori uru ordale. That is a noun phrase. That is the subject of the sentence. The mind knowing its own form of light. That is the subject. And the subject, um, the, the, the subject uh, um, complement is unmayonichi, real awareness. So he says the, the mind knowing its own form of light is real awareness. Letting go of external um, objects is a is a adverbial clause so it of course in order to turn our attention within we need to be ready to let go of other things so long as we're holding on to other things we're not turning our attention within so that is a that's a prerequisite but merely letting go of other things is not turning our attention within we need to we cannot turn our attention within without letting go of external objects but we can let go of external objects without turning our mind within, as we know every from our experience every day when we fall asleep, we let go of the external objects, but we don't turn our attention within. So we subside in layer, so we rise again sooner or later. Um, I think that's all the questions today. Okay. It's good timing. There's a comment. Um, oh, no, there is one. Um, which is, which is just come in. Um, okay. Oh, this is uh, a question. Um, it says that, Michael, I enjoyed your discussion with Bernardo Castro. Would you please tell us your thoughts on the conversation? Thank you so much. Um, I think, you know, you had... Uh, I, I think I've told my thoughts on it. I yes. Mean, he, he is obviously a good person, a good, well-intentioned person, but this is something much deeper and subtler than anything he's come across before. So it was, for him, what I was saying seemed appalling because he, he, he wasn't understanding the subtlety and nuances of Bhagavan's teachings. So... Um, yeah, whether he will get anything useful from it, whether he'll think about it afterwards and come to understand or not, that's no concern of ours. That's up to him. And uh, I mean, Bhagavan is gu guiding everyone. So ultimately, 
we will all be given to see this, but not everyone is given is ready to see it yet. So whether he's whether with time he'll be able to think about it more deeply and understand what is being said or not, that's not no concern about it. That's up to Bhagavan. So, Some people <laughs> thought it was, it, but I shouldn't have engaged in such a, a discussion. It's useless to dis engage in such a discussion. But Bhagavan, all types of people came to Bhagavan. Bhagavan discussed these things with all types of people. Some people who were obstinately not willing to get it, Bhagavan would just keep quiet. But if people were curious to know more, Bhagavan would answer them. So there's no wrong in discussing these things. Perhaps I did wrong in going in expecting too much of him. I maybe took the topic too deep and uh, he was clearly out of his depth. So um, that's possibly wrong on my part. But anyway, things happen as they're meant to happen. So, um, but um, yeah, that was my thoughts on it. It's uh, these things, have, I mean, we, we have all sorts of discussions with all sorts of people. And it's not only he who had so many people who really want to follow Bhagavan's teachings have difficulty understanding this, this teaching, but there's only one ego. It's very difficult for people to understand um, because it's a very deep and subtle point. Um, so it's, I, can, I fully sympathize with his, the difficulty he had understanding it. And how for him it seemed to be something appalling because he wasn't, he, he was, from what I was saying, he was leading to, he, it made him infer, but I should therefore be totally heartless and uh, unconcerned about others because if I really believe that others are not sentient. But I, I, I tried to explain, but I was uh, obviously not uh, able to explain. That's why I, at the beginning of today's discussion, I oh. went through the argument to try and make it, break it down in a way to make it easier for people to understand if they want to approach it from a purely analytical and logical perspective. Um, a last question has come in now. Yes. And I think we should just address this very briefly because it's right at the end. Which saints and bhaktas were most influential in Bhagwan's life? Is there anyone he spoke of the most? I there is Bhagwan. There are certain um, saints whose literature Bhagwan often referred to, like Manika Vasaka, um, Thai Manava. Um, but we can't say Bhagwan is influenced by anyone. Bhagavan, I mean, it's clear from Bhagavan's story. At the age of 16, um, he spontaneously turned his attention within. Okay, before that, before that uh, uh, time when that fear of death came and he turned his attention within, and that was the end of the story. Um, before that, uh, he had read the Pariya Puranam. And when he read the Pariya Puranam, which is the stories of, um, of, uh, of Tamil Shaivite saints, he was very much moved by their devotion. And so he used to go to the temple and sit there in front of their, the statues of the 63 saints, and he would be shedding tears, uh, longing to have such bhakti. That was the only thing that we could say influenced him. 
because that was before the death experience. So many people confuse it, but it was after the death experience. But after the death, after the death experience, in the six weeks between when he had between the death experience and when he left for Tiruvannamalai, he used to go to the temple and stand in front of the mother's shrine. But that he without any, but there's no prayer or anything. He just went and stood there. Um, but the the so people confuse that with the earlier time when he would go and sit in front of the of the, of the images of the sixty three saints, and he would be shedding tears, longing for such bhakti. But um, he was such a ripe soul. He, I mean. He, he, it was obvious that, that the ego that was born as Venkataraman was so ripe. It need not have been born, but it was born in order for that body to be a vehicle for this um, for this divine incarnation that we call Bhagavan, who is Arunachya Shiva himself. Um, we can end so, Bhagavan is the source of all these. Um, <clears throat> some some people say that Bhagavan is not a proper guru because he didn't study Vedanta under a under a properly qualified uh, teacher. But Bhagavan is the source of Vedanta. Where does Vedanta come from? It comes only from Bhagavan. Bhagavan, as, not Bhagavan as the person he seems to us to be, but Bhagavan as he actually is, which is Brahman itself. Uh, yeah, the, that which is one without a second. And that which is one without a second is never influenced by anything or, or anyone because it is one without a second. There is no other. So we, with our finite mind, we cannot understand Bhagavan correctly because we, we try to understand Bhagavan as the person that he seemed to be. But his whole teaching is I am not this person. I am not this body. I am that which is shining in, as I am in the heart of everyone. I think, is that the end? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, so we'll just end with Bhagavan's mantra. And thank you very much, Michael, all right. for, for, a very, for a very enlightening session. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Om Namo Bhagwate Sri Ramanaya Om Namo Bhagwate Sri Ramanaya Om Namo Bhagwate Shri Ramanaya